Father, thank you for promising to send us the spirit of truth, to magnify you, to reveal all truth to us, even things to come. Father, we pray that you'd open our eyes, that we would see you more clearly, that we would love you more deeply. Help us to see you in a way that enables us and empowers us to share you with the world around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Louis de Berquin was a noble in the French court in the 1500s. And as a noble, he uh, actually became a knight. He was a lawyer. He was well-established. He was known for uh, being uh, very good with his words. And he also was an avid attender of Mass. He loved Mass. He loved the church. He loved to hear what the priest would tell him that the Bible said and he, or, or the the doctrines of the church, and he was a a firm supporter of what we call the Church of the Middle Ages. Now last week we looked at how the Church of the the Middle Ages wasn't necessarily God's people in the Middle Ages. There was a a difference. There's, There's God's church that was in the wilderness, and then there is what the dragon was doing to persecute his people through the church. Well, Around this time, if you know your history in the 1500s, who came up? Martin Luther began began to have some questions about some of the things that were happening. And as he was studying and Lutheranism was beginning to spread in Germany, it began to go over into France. And when Berquin heard about Lutheranism, he was upset. This heretic, this crazy guy is telling these things about the Bible. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's contradicting the church. This guy... He did not like Lutheranism. He hated it. And one day he decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick up my Bible and I'm going to study it. And in studying it, I expect that I will be able to disprove Lutheranism. And so he began to read his Bible. And you can probably guess what happens when you begin to read your Bible. And that's the whole thing that we were talking about. God grants us the freedom. He multiplies his word. He multiplies truth. That's how he works in hearts, not by forcing his way into hearts, but by giving truth and revealing light. And as, as he had the word of God and he poured over it, he realized something. Wait a second, Luther's right. The church is totally off base. And so he began to study it more deeply himself. And he began to share this. And this is a dangerous thing. In fact, he was taken by the monks. His, his deepest enemies were at the University of Paris. The monks and the doctors at the University of Paris, uh, they threw him into a dungeon. Well, Thankfully, he had a friend in the king, having been a part of the court. And Francis I, he went and he took him out of prison. He said, well, let's let him talk. And, and they went back and forth. He went in prison a number of times, back and forth, back and forth. And at one point, he decided he needed to directly attack those who were at the university. And he wrote down 12 tenets about what was wrong with what they were believing. And he, he showed it from the Bible. And then he, he challenged the king, he said, look, how about you call us all in together and we look at the Bible and you be the judge. You see, what does the Bible actually say? Am I right or are they right? You be the judge. And so the king was about to do this. He called the monks. He called the doctors and said, hey, come. And they weren't excited about this. You know why? Because you can't prove this stuff from the Bible, the stuff that the church began to teach. They knew how to use persecution. They knew how to use intimidation, but they did not know how to have a discussion from the Bible. But then something happened. On a street corner in Paris, a statue of the Virgin Mary one night was defaced. I don't know if it was an overzealous Protestant who was like, I'm going to get rid of this image. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but it was defaced. And suddenly there was a popular outcry and people got really upset and because of this, the king got upset. He said, wait, what? The Holy Mother is getting this is bad news, this, this doctrine that's being taught. And the monks took advantage of this, and they went to the king, and they told him this. You can read it in The History of Protestantism by J.A. Wiley. Said so They went to the king, and they said, These are the fruits of the doctrines of Berquin. All is about to be overthrown. Now notice what they say. All of this is going to be overthrown. Religion, the laws, and the throne itself. 
by this Lutheran conspiracy. Do you understand that if you let this happen, anarchy is going to break out. Here they are defacing the statue of Mary. This is going to create chaos if you let this doctrine come in. And the king listened to them. There was still a little bit of a back and forth, but not for Berquin. Before long, Berquin was brought. He was led uh, to be burned at the stake. And he wore actually royal garments that day. And people, as they watched him go to the stake, they noted the peace on his face. They noted the joy on his face. And as usual, the blood of martyrs was seed. And you find more people sprouting up like William Farrell and John Calvin all coming up within France trying to convince the king, trying to convince the nation that the Bible was what they needed to stand on. That it's by faith in Jesus alone. And yet little by little, France rejected this and pushed it back until finally their pushing back became so horrendous that they were murdering thousands and thousands of Protestants. It's fascinating when you, when you pick up the Bible and you read Revelation chapter 13. Go with me to Revelation chapter 13. And you see what takes place in France particularly and through what takes place in France. Revelation chapter 13 we're going to be looking at and also Revelation chapter 11. So at the end of chapter 12, we have the dragon is enraged with a woman and he goes off to make war with a remnant of her seeds who keep the commandment of God and who have the testimony of Jesus. He's really upset. And so then we begin to see this unpacking of what that war against God's remnant church looks like. And in verse 1, it says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, crowns can be representative of political power and horns, uh, but then you have this blasphemous name. What is, does blasphemy involve politics? Does it involve uh, civil rule? That's a religious term. That's having to do with what we say about God, okay? So we're seeing a religious and political power. Verse 2 says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now, if you were receiving this letter from John, having been written on the Isle of Patmos, and, and this letter came to you, and you were versed in the Old Testament, you would have instantly been like, ah, I know what he's talking about here. He's referencing us to Daniel chapter 7, because in Daniel chapter 7, he receives this vision where the first thing he sees in the vision is the lion, and the lion, he's told, represents Babylon. And then you have the bear, which represents Medo-Persia, and then you have the leopard that comes that represents Greece. And then you have the nondescript beast, which represents Rome. But notice here that, that this is in opposite order, and this is a composite beast that takes in characteristics of all of these things. It says, I saw this beast, it was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And you also notice that this is in reverse order because from where John is looking, he's looking back at, at history for these things. Okay, so, so Daniel sees it in order of the lion, then he sees the bear, then he sees the leopard. But when John's seeing it, he sees first the leopard, then he sees the bear, then he sees the lion. Because he's looking back in history, whereas Daniel's looking for what's coming in the future. Is this making sense at all? If it's not, please, let's talk about it later. We can look at it in more detail. To give you the idea, in Daniel chapter 7, there's this little horn power that rises up and it speaks pompous words against the Most High and it treads this and it, it, it oppresses the saints for a time period. 42 months or 1260 days, which we talked about last week. Isaac Newton realized that uh, in Bible prophecy, a day is for a year. So 1260 years. And last week we looked at the beginning of that takes place in 538 where you have this full authority given to the bishop of Rome where he now is able to have ecclesiastical and civil power there in Rome. So you have this this beast that shows up and then it says this the dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now, here's just a fascinating point. You see what Satan is doing. Satan being the dragon. He gives his authority. He gives his seat. He gives his power to this horrendous beast figure who, what happens to this beast? He's mortally wounded and then that wound is healed. 
Okay, so in order to grasp this a little bit fuller, we need to take a quick look at, at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about this same thing, but calls it the man of sin. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is talking about what's going to take place in the last days, and he says this. It says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So this is a crazy picture saying, hey, there's going to come this figure, this man of sin, who's going to actually exalt himself to the place where he's sitting in the temple of God and he's exalting himself as if he is God. Now this is what we call an imposter. Somebody who wants you to think that he is God, and yet he's totally misrepresenting, uh, it might be called a character assassination of who God really is. And this is really what Revelation 13 is describing. Because you notice what happens after um, the, the, the deadly wound is healed. It says, All the world wandered after the beast in verse 4, so they worshiped the dragon who gave the authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now this... If you look at it uh, in one sense, you look at it as Satan, as the dragon, originally said, I want to ascend. I want to go higher. I think that God is, self, is selfish. And I want to, to, to make my rule of government be the way that the universe operates. I want to seat myself on the mount of the congregation. And here you have the dragon giving his seat to the beast. Now think about this. God the Father, who has been given his throne and his authority, who is sitting on the throne with God the Father today? Who is? Jesus. Now, what happened in Jesus' life? Was Jesus ever mortally wounded? And was he resurrected? That's why we come to worship together. So you see that this power is an antichrist power, that this is the antichrist who's Do you see here what's what's being depicted? He has a mortal wound which is healed. And then it goes on to say that the world says, who is like this beast? And, And the name Michael is used in the Bible to describe the ruler of the angels who wars with the dragon. And that represents, I believe, the pre incarnate Christ, the eternal second person of the Godhead. Okay. So here you have an antichrist power. Now, let's just look at at what he does. Verse verse 5, And he was given a mouth speaking great great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. You see what he's doing? He's blaspheming the name of God. What, What is the name of God? What does that represent? It just it represents his character. Throughout the Bible, a name represents character. So he's, he's making an assassination attempt on the character of God, and he's doing it by impersonating God and by creating a system of worship that totally distorts the character of God. Are you tracking with me here? Just, just raise your hand if this is making any sense at all, if it's making no sense at all, you know. You can do like this, and we can backtrack a little. Okay, so, so here you have a figure who is exalting himself as God, and, and we're going to look at history at what this really, really looks like. Right? So it was first, uh, we were in verse. So he opened his mouth in blasphemy, verse 6, against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle. So this is his system of worship. So he blasphemes who God is, and he also totally distorts God's sanctuary. And, and the little horn power is talked about as having like 
cast down God's sanctuary. So, so here you have a picture of him totally distorting the system of salvation and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So you see this period is given here 42 months, 12, which is 1260 days if you have 30 days in a month, like in Bible prophecy, and then a day for a year. Uh, that gets you to 1260 years. This time period where God's character was especially maligned throughout the world. It's making sense? So throughout the world, God's character, his name was maligned. How so? Because the church, what should have been representing who God was, has suddenly become something that began to tell us things about God that were entirely contrary to what his character was actually like. There's a a lot of variations of this, but let me give you one example. You have a, a guy by the name of William Tetzel who would go around preaching about something called indulgences. And as he would go around preaching about indulgences, he would tell you, here's the deal. As soon as you take that coin and you put it into the casket, which is where they would put their offering, the moment you put the coin in the casket, in that moment, your loved one will no longer be writhing in pain in purgatory. Because right now, your loved one is, is in agony. In the, have you ever stuck your, your hand in a flame before and felt what that's like? Can you imagine what your loved one is going through right now? God is torturing them in this place called purgatory, and they're writhing in pain. And if you'll just give enough money, you can set that person free. A terrible picture of God. It, th- there's this picture of, of, of saints being magnified where, hey, you know, you may not be righteous, but Jesus' mom was, so pray to the Virgin Mary, and, and the Virgin Mary has enough righteousness built up that she'll be able to convince God to be good to you. Or, or maybe you should talk to St. Paul, or maybe to St. Peter. Maybe you should pray to somebody, because God doesn't love you as much as he loves those people, and so you can't go directly to God yourself. And the entire system of salvation was entirely distorted to say, hey, don't confess your sins to Jesus. Take them to the priest and confess them to the priest instead of going directly to God. God doesn't want to hear directly from you. He wants you to go through this priest. Even the sacraments that were given at Mass, were they were displayed as actually being the body physically of Christ and, and the wine as physically being the blood of Jesus. That, that the priest, when he said certain words, that that actually became the blood and body of Jesus. And if you didn't partake of that, that's how you got salvation, was actually through eating the body and the blood of Christ. And Jesus did say, do these things in remembrance of me so that they can point your eyes to me. But it was not to get us to focus on priests, to focus on the Mass, but to focus on Jesus. And to focus on His loving character, a God who is available, a God who invites us in, a God who invites us closer. So how did these things change? We see here that, that this beast receives a mortal wound. And that seems like good news, doesn't it? And specifically, it says it like this. Look at verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. And then here's the good news. Whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We'll come back to that. But keep that in mind. Verse 8. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. This is really important. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience of the saints. So what began to take place in France is they rejected this light some 300 years later in the very spot where thousands and thousands of Protestants were massacred. In that very spot, things began to change in France. Beginning in about 1789, something called the French Revolution began to take place. And black Blackwood's Magazine describes what France audaciously went on to do in their assembly. You know, a lot of things built up to this, but we'll look at it that it primarily the cause was the bad theology of the church and the, the suppression of the Bible is what led to what France did. But, 
Blackwoods Magazine, November 1870, says this, France is the only nation in the world concerning which the authentic record survives that as a nation she lifted her hand in open rebellion against the author of the universe. Plenty of blasphemers, plenty of infidels there have been and still continue to be in England, Germany, Spain, and elsewhere. But France stands apart in the world's history as a single state which by the decree of her legislative assembly pronounced that there was no God. And of which the entire population of the capital and a vast majority elsewhere, women as well as men, danced and sang with joy in acceptance of the announcement. Isn't that crazy to think about? Here you have a legislative assembly that comes together in France and they say, God doesn't exist. And they tell the people about it and they all dance and sing on the street saying, Aha, God is dead. This is wonderful. There is no God. So here's the fascinating thing. When you read through Revelation 13 and it says, this beast receives a mortal wound at the end of uh, 1260 years, that sounds like a good thing. Does it sound like a good thing for this beast power that's misrepresenting God? Does that sound like a good thing for it to receive a mortal wound? I mean, we want for God's character to be rectified. We want for it to be righted. But do you realize how that happened? It happened through the French Revolution where you have the rise of atheism for the first time in a major way in world history. And you also have the, the, the rise of what today we call the sexual revolution where it doesn't matter if it's a man and woman married, but it, let it just multiply in every possible way. You have this, this horrendous picture of what began to take place in the reign of terror in France. They changed everything. They even changed the week to be 10 days long in France. They tried that out for a while. Obviously, it didn't work very well. There's something about seven days, and I would say about the seventh day in particular, that that makes a seven-day week important. And, And so you look at this, and you're like, wait, hang on. Here you have a terrible thing happening that that brings the mortal wound upon this beast. And what is atheism really? And why did atheism become such a big deal during this time period? I love what it says uh, in the book. Let's see here if I can find it really fast. Book Great Controversy, page 281. It says, The only God they knew was the God of Rome. Her teaching was their only religion. They regarded her greed and cruelty as the legitimate fruit of the Bible, and they would have none of it. Rome had misrepresented the character of God and perverted his requirements, and now men rejected both the Bible and its author. So I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about atheists? I assume that that we may not have a whole lot of atheists here this morning, but if, if that's your persuasion, I just want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. You're always welcome to come and fellowship with us. But we tend as Christians to, to get frustrated with, with secular atheism. We get frustrated with, with the way things are going with, with atheism in the world today. And, and the, it's a frustrating thing to see people saying there's no God. And my temptation is to be like, hey, look, here's the top reasons why you should believe that the Bible is true. One, here's prophecy, here's history, here's uh, my personal experience, my testimony, and this is why you should take the Bible as, 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 as the Word of God. And then you need to just do what it says. Now, that's not all bad, but here's the thing. Look at what some prominent atheists um, have, have said, and, and see how you feel about this, okay? This is Richard Dawkins. The God Delusion uh, was a book that he wrote some years back that was very popular. In fact, it was on the best-selling list in, in many different countries for a long, extended period of time. He's, he's really the, the popular uh, figurehead for atheism. Uh, has a lot of crazy things to say, but check out this, what he says about the church. He says, an institution guilty of inquisitions, protecting child rapists, homophobia, and misogyny, has moral authority. Makes sense. A sarcastic remark. Uh, do you agree with him? Do you agree with this atheist? How many of you agree? 
How many of you disagree with them this morning? Disagree? All right, so you may throw me out of here as your pastor, but I just want to say something. I agree with what Richard Dawkins just said. I don't know if that makes me an atheist, but I'm here to tell you that that, that what I, I believe is that an institution that's guilty of the Inquisition, do you know what happened in the Inquisition? Hundreds of thousands, and, and throughout the Dark Ages, 60 million people, it's estimated, were killed as heretics by the church. Okay, so, so think about that type of action among a, a, a church protecting child rapists. I am not okay with that. Homophobia, misogyny has, has moral authority. Makes sense. To me, none of those things make sense. Let's try another one. Taylor Schilling. I, or I should I should say it doesn't make sense to me for an organization that participates in those things to have moral authority. Taylor Schilling, an an actor, says this: I cannot get behind some supreme being who weighs in on the Tony Awards while a million people get whacked with machetes. Now I haven't watched a lot of actor awards, but apparently, what is the what are the two things that an actor will usually say? that they want to say thank you for when they get an award. They want to thank their mom, and they want to thank God. How often do actors thank God? Apparently, a lot of times actors thank God when they get an award. Is this true? Yes? No? Good. Maybe you don't watch the awards either. All right. So how about football player? Maybe you've seen that before. When they make a touchdown, where do they point? God. Or they'll take a knee, and, and she's saying, look, If God cares about football games, if God cares about you getting an award as a selfish actor, but he doesn't care about people in a genocide in Rwanda who are being whacked with machetes, I don't want anything to do with that God. And I'll be honest, I don't want anything to do with that God either. Does that make your pastor an atheist? This might be the last sermon I ever preach, if so, huh? Gwyneth Paltrow, religion is the cause of all the problems in the world. It causes war. More people have died because of religious conflict than any other reason. Now, she is blowing things way out of proportion. I don't agree with what she's saying. However, if I believed what she believed, I too would be an atheist. Brad Pitt, who I understand has actually changed now that he he apparently believes in Jesus, but he said, I was brought up being told that that things were God's way. When things didn't work out, it was God's plan. Have you ever heard everything happens for a reason? Do children die young because God wants them to? Is it God's purpose that we get cancer? Is it God's purpose and plan that these evil things exist on our planet? The young children are mistreated and abused. Does everything happen for a reason? I understand the idea of a God who says you have... I don't understand the idea of a God who says you have to acknowledge me, you have to say that I'm the best... Then I'll give you eternal happiness. A big question for me was fairness. If I'd grown up in some other religion, would I get the same shot at heaven as the Christian has? I have to say, I agree with bad print. If there's a God who's saying, hey, you just have to say that I'm the best, and if you say I'm the best, then I'll invite you to heaven, that's a self-serving, selfish God who Satan claimed existed and was cast out of heaven for it. How about this? George Carlin, a comedian, said this. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these 10 things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever until the end of time. But he loves you. He loves you. And he needs money. He always needs money. He's all-powerful, all-perfect, all-knowing, all-wise. Somehow, he just can't handle money. Now, you know, I read something like that, and I think, ah, if only he could know who God 
is. No wonder he's rejecting this picture of God. That's a horrendous picture of God that is not revealed in the Bible. And there's a reason that people might react against us when we say that we're Christian. There's a reason that people might react against us when we invite them to church. What we need to do is introduce them to a loving God and to a character that is like no other that we've ever seen before. You know, the the church became the wealthiest organization. They, they estimate that it's probably wealthier. They don't know for sure how wealthy the, 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 the common, uh, today we call it the Catholic. Catholic means general church really is, but this is the, what is carried on from the Middle Ages. We don't know how wealthy it is, but it could be as wealthy, some estimate even, as maybe the United States of America. We're, we're talking to billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. And you think about how that money came. It came by people going on long pilgrimages and, and paying penances and, and trying to earn their way to get God's favor, trying to, to enable God to accept them. And don't get me wrong, I'm talking about a system of religion that misrepresents God. I'm not talking about any people. I'm not talking about even any person or leader of a church. What I'm talking about is a system that misrepresents God's character. And I have to recognize that sometimes, maybe that's been me too. Maybe I misrepresent God's character. Voltaire, who wrote during the French uh, revolution and it was a big part of giving the ideologies of the french revolution said those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities if you believe enough crazy things about how god wants you to behave you begin to commit atrocities because hey if god tortures people willingly gladly throughout eternity and it brings him glory then maybe i should start the burning now and that's what took place in the middle ages english actress Kira Knightley has joked that she wishes that she were a Christian. If only I was an atheist, I could get away with anything. She said in 2012, you just ask for forgiveness and then you'd be forgiven. You see what she's saying? She's saying, I have to live up to something. I have to actually have moral worth. But, but what I'm seeing in some Christians, and don't get me wrong, this is not to condemn all Christians, but, but what I'm seeing is people who because they've confessed Jesus, go on living however they want to live. And God chooses, in the Bible, to use the most horrendous beast figure. Imagine that this dream comes to you in a nightmare, and you see this seven-headed figure like multiple predators coming after you, and you see this, this awful picture. And God's not using it to depict atheism. We'll get to that in a second. He does use a beast to represent atheism, but he's using it to represent the church because the most hateful and abominable thing to God is for us as Christians to misrepresent who he is. Because if somebody says, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't believe in God, that's one thing. But if I say I believe in God and I misrepresent him or I share things that are not true about his character, that is more hurtful and harmful to a person's eternal salvation than to merely try to tell them that God does not exist. Romans chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 says it this way, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So we look at this picture and we see that this mortal wound takes place and it takes place through an atheistic power, through anarchy that took place. You know, the blood began to run in the streets of France because they had invented this guillotine killing machine that couldn't keep up with beheading people fast enough and hundreds of thousands of people are, are, are dying there in, French in, this ra- in France in this reign of terror. A terrible, horrible picture of what God predicted would take place. You remember what Revelation 13 said? Revelation chapter 13 and verse 10 said, He who leads into captivity will go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with the sword. 
The, the Bible says it in other ways like this. You, you dig a pit and you're going to fall into it. You break through a wall and you're going to get bit by a viper. If you use force, it's going to react back upon you. This is the way that God has designed the universe to work. And that's why Jesus could say, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And in this way, fulfill all the law and the prophets. God's law of love is the principle upon which the universe operates. And when we violate that law of love, it eventually will react upon us in a way that will hurt us in the same way that we have hurt others. Now, that doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to good people. It doesn't mean that you're going to get it right away. But eventually, there is a result to transgression of God's law. But the good news is there's also a Savior. What did we read two verses before that? That there are some who aren't worshiping the beast whose names are not, have not been written, whose names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The key is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When you think about some of atheists' major attacks upon religion, is this idea of of a God who allows suffering to go on. But this verse tells us that. This God was the God who was slain from the foundation of the world. Meaning that when he created this planet, as he thought about creating this planet, he knew you sitting here in Templeton and he knew the things that you would do. He knew the suffering that would be going on in your life. And he went ahead and he created this planet full well knowing that he would take that suffering onto himself at the cross. And the cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the suffering that has taken place in the heart of of God from the very inception of sin. From the very first sin that took place, God has felt the pain, the suffering that has taken place on this planet, just like I feel when my daughter falls and, and, and skins her knee. And I, I look at that and I, I wish that I could take away her pain for her. When, when my daughter is crying and I wish that I could make her happy, how much more does an infinite God of love care about you and me? Now quickly, let's look here at the beautiful picture of the other side of the story. Now it doesn't seem beautiful at first, um, but, but here's the deal that, that takes place if you look back in Revelation chapter 11. The same wounding, this mortal wound that takes place, is described as also causing damage to the two witnesses that we talked about last week. Do you remember who the two witnesses were? It's the Old and New Testament who prophesied in sackcloth, the Waldenses, the, the Huguenots, the, the Protestant Reformation. You have people over in Scotland. You have Columba. You have all of these different people who are continuing to be faithful to the God in the midst, uh, faithful to the Bible in the midst of, of times where people aren't, aren't, aren't paying any attention to the Bible. The Bible is being suppressed. Well, notice what happens at the end of the same time period, which... The French, uh, ultimately, you see the mortal wound taking place when the, the, the um, Napoleon sends his general over to Rome, and he actually has him take the Pope of Rome and take him out of his throne and put him into prison, and he ends up dying in prison. This takes place in 1798. He dies in prison in 1799, and you no longer see Rome having the same, the Roman church having the same power or authority at that point in time. Now we, we do see the healing taking place like the chapter t- talks about. But here at the end of that same time period, notice what it says about the two witnesses, right? So when they had finished their testimony, this is at the end of the 42 months or the 1260 days, which is mentioned in verse uh, two and three. It says this, when they finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Okay, so in all of Revelation, there's one chapter that deals with the demonic nature of atheism. And that's here. The rest of it is often talking about the church and the problems with the church and the church needing to repent. But here you have the picture of demonic atheism. It says this beast ascends from the bottomless pit, will make war against them, overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. All right. So what ended up happening in Sodom As they rejected God, as they chose a a life of wickedness, you see clearly this this evil um, level to which they took sexuality. So you have Sodom, and you see a similar mirror taking place in the French Revolution. 
Sodom and Egypt. What took place in Egypt? When Moses came to Egypt and he said, Yahweh says for you to let his people go. Pharaoh responds, well, who's Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh. That's atheism at its core. I don't know who this God is. There is no God named Yahweh. What are you talking about? I'm not worried about this. So name Sodom and, and, uh, and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now you remember what priests believed took place as they blessed the bread and the grape juice that Jesus' body actually physically was there, that his blood actually physically was there crucifying afresh Jesus over and over at every mass, recreating his body and his blood somehow magically there in that moment. He's crucified afresh. And then it goes on to say this, then those from the people's tribes and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. This takes place at the same time period when the beast is receiving its mortal wound. At the same time, the Bible is being burned in the streets. In fact, there's this one story about how they took the Bible on a pole, they took it into an assembly, and it was in ashes. It had been totally consumed, and it's there on top of this pole. And as they take it in there, I'll, I'll try to read it here. Um, At the Popular Society of the Museum, they entered the hall of the municipality exclaiming, Viva la Reason! And carrying on the top of a pole the half-burned remains of several books, including the Old and New Testament, which expiated in a great fire, said the president, all the fooleries which they have made the human race commit. What a terrible thing. I mean... Rome was suppressing the scriptures, but now it's being burned. It's being outlawed in 1793. The Bible actually was outlawed. There was no way for people to have access to the Bible. And for three and a half years, that was the case. People had no access to the Bible. So who's to blame for this? Obviously, atheism created this problem. It was the beast who ascends from the pit. But notice what the great controversy says about this. Page 281, it says, the only God they knew was the God of Rome. Her teaching was their only religion. They regarded her greed and cruelty as the legitimate fruit of the Bible, and they would have none of it. Rome had misrepresented the character of God and perverted his requirements, and now men rejected both the Bible and its author. The war against the Bible carried forward for so many centuries in France culminated in the scenes of the revelation. The terrible outbreaking was but the legitimate result of Rome's suppression of the scriptures. Later on page 276, in strict justice, these crimes are to be charged on the church. All right, so we see atheism coming in. We see anarchy coming in. We see this craziness where they're burning Bibles in the streets. They're saying, you cannot have a Bible. And really, who's to blame for it? It's the church for having misrepresented who God is. Both are represented as terrible beast powers. You have the sea beast and you have the beast that ascends from the bottomless pit. But here's the incredible news that it goes on to tell us. If you go on reading in Revelation chapter 11, after three and a half years, verse, and it says, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry. Look at verse 11. Now, after the three and a half days, representing three and a half years, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they ascend to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. <laughs> the awesome thing is that somehow, out of the midst of this chaos, out of the midst of this strife, of, of you have atheism going against the church, and in the midst of these two contending factions, the Bible is downtrodden in that time. And it's a horrendous time period. But God steps in, and he gives life to his book, and to the words that reveal what his really loving character is all about, and it says that the witnesses are ascend to heaven figuratively and that they are no longer able to be touched. They're no longer able to be burned in the street. Nobody can take the Bible away from us today because 
we have so many different versions of it. The, the Great Controversy goes on to say it this way. Since France made war upon God's two witnesses, they have been honored as never before. In 1804, the British and Foreign Bible Society was organized. This was followed by similar organizations with numerous branches upon the continent of Europe. In 1816, the American Bible Society was founded. When the British Bible Society was formed, the Bible had been printed and, and circulated in 50 tongues. It has since been translated into many hundreds of languages and dialects. And this was written back in the, the early 1900s. And so today you might say thousands of, of different languages. The infidel Voltaire, the one who wrote in the French Revolution, once boastingly said, I am weary of hearing people repeat that 12 men established the Christian religion. I will prove that one man may suffice to overthrow it. Generations have passed since his death. Millions have joined in the war upon the Bible. But it is so far from being destroyed that where there was a hundred in Voltaire's time, there are now 10,000, yes, a hundred thousand copies of the book of God. In the words of an early reformer concerning the church, Christian church, the Bible is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that is risen against you in judgment you shall condemn. Revelation 13 says that he who kills by the sword will be killed by the sword. He who leads into captivity will be led into captivity. However, there's a group of people whose name has been written in the book of life. And there is in the Bible this, this record of this book of life that, did you know that there's only talk about blotting out of the book of life? That, that names are, are blotted out of the book of life. But, but this, from the very foundation of the world, Jesus planned for your salvation. He has already provided for it in entirety. From the foundation of the world, he provided for your salvation. And your name doesn't need to be blotted out of that book. You can confess your sins and you today can rejoice in a loving Savior who accepts you, not because of who you are and what you've done, but because of who he is and what he's done for you. Friends, we're living in a crazy world today. The world is trending towards something similar to the French Revolution. Do you see that at all? Do you see how we have anarchy, we have uh, we have Anarchy, we have uh, atheism rising up. We have the sexual revolution. We have these things that are going on. But there are two powers that we need to be wary of. One, we need to be wary of this beast that ascends from the bottomless pit. We need to be wary of not believing in God, not believing in the Bible. But we also need to be wary of misrepresenting God as a church, as Christians. We need to be wary of taking on civil authority and civil power there are two things at stake here and there is a battle going on between two forces that both are satanic in origin. Do you see that? Both the church and the atheists were inspired by Satan to create the French Revolution. And today, we're seeing something similar taking place. And I have really good news for you. When the Pharisees came to Jesus and they're like, hey, he's casting out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. He said, well, if Satan, if, if by Satan I'm casting out Satan, then Satan is divided against himself and a house that is divided against itself will not stand. So the answer does not come in going to one party or the other. It comes in going to the Bible for yourself. And it comes in painting a more beautiful picture for God, of God, than the world has ever seen before. It comes and say, no, that's not who God really is. Who God really is is a God of love, a God of compassion, a God who's already provided for your salvation, a God who has your good in mind, a God who will withhold nothing good from you. I remember one day where I was uh, parked at a park and I was talking to a friend, and I was near a university, an Adventist university that I was attending, and there were these kids in the, the park playing Frisbee, and as they were playing Frisbee, they were throwing their Frisbee around, and, and pretty soon the Frisbee would like graze my car, and I really liked my car, and I remember getting out and saying, hey, do you mind not hitting my car with your Frisbee? They're like, oh yeah, yeah, sorry about that. 
And then they like began to play frisbee over my car, back and forth over my car. And, it, and they began to hit the car more and more frequently. And I was so angry. I got out and I'm like, I told you once, I'm not going to tell you again. And I used some words that I'm not proud of. I told them to get away from my car. And one of them, being the smart aleck high school kid that he was, came up to me. He's like, oh, so what are you doing here in the park? I'm like, oh, well, we're just having, we're talking here. Well, why are you here? Why don't you go to your house? I'm like, well, I live at these dormitories. Oh, you live at dormitories. What dormitories? Oh, well, that's at the Adventist, at the university just down the street. Oh, I know that university. Isn't that the Seventh-day Adventist school? Yeah. Oh, are, are you a Seventh-day Adventist? In that moment, I wished that a pothole would open up and I could just disappear in the parking lot. I didn't say anything. I turned around, got in my car, and I drove away. Because I was misrepresenting God's name. I was misrepresenting his character. And friends, the most important thing is that we represent who he is. The most important thing is that we let his character become a part of us, that we get to know him as revealed in the Bible. That will change everything. In John chapter 16, Jesus warning his disciples, he said, people will kill you thinking that they're doing service for God. And these things they'll do because they have not known me and they have not known the Father. What we really need to know in order for this transformation to take place is God as revealed in the Bible. I just want to invite you to to meditate on this song, Give Me the Bible. And as we we listen to the words of the song, it's not about the words on the page, but it's about the God of love that's revealed in the Bible. There's plenty of people that misuse the Bible, that hold up the Bible, who are not representing the Bible. But what we need is to represent this incredible God of love that's revealed from cover to cover in the Bible. Father, give us a hunger and thirst for your word. Give us a desire to know you through the Bible. Lord, we want to know you. We really do. Lord, would you open our eyes to maybe any tendencies in us that are like the Antichrist, that maybe the lawless one is at work in my life, maybe because of my confusion about who you are. Help me to see you more clearly as a God of infinite love. And Lord, may we rejoice that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done and what you are doing in order to save us. Lord God, may we not walk away from you, may we not walk away from the Bible, but may we cling to you as never before. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.